Welcome to the first episode of the Bannerman and LA Kings podcast. This is episode one, The Force of Blakens. I am joined by my co-host, as always, Vardy. What's up, Vardy? How you doing tonight? Hey, God. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, man. So first things first, let's talk about why we're doing this. We're doing this because we love the Kings. We certainly do. And we're not insiders. We're just fans. We get our sources and our information from the same places you do, from the same reliable people who report on the Kings all the time. We just wanted a venue to express our thoughts and put our thoughts out there for the world to enjoy or ridicule, and you can do either of those and get back to us about it. So let's get into it. Let's get into it, Vardy. First thing I want to discuss regarding the team was the changes going into the offseason. Dean Lombardi, Daryl Sutter, both out as a GM and coach, respectively, replaced by Rob Blake and John Stevens as the coach, and Luke Robitaille is now running Hockey Ops, which... Uh, we'll get into that a little bit more, but your thoughts initially, Vardy, on on the changes and if it was the right move, and if we are better today in terms of management than we were a couple of weeks ago. Honestly, it's hard for me to say right off of the bat that we're better, and that's that's not a knock necessarily against Blake or Luke or anyone else who's still there in the front office, or even John Stevens, who was brought in as Daryl Sutter's replacement. It's it's more of a reflection of my respect for what. Dean and Daryl were able to do for this team. I, I distinctly remember the first day or the first season, I should say, that Dean was around and the five free agent signings that signaled the beginning of a new era. And, and if you can name, you know, all five of those, take a drink, I suppose. You know, okay, I'm gonna try this. Hold on, let me see if I remember. Ladislav Nagy, check. Bam. Um, Michael Hanzus, indeed. Tom Pricing, indeed. Um, Kyle Calder, yes. Is that four? You're at four. Who's five, man? That was a tough one. Pricing caller. Brad Stewart. Yes. Was that the five? I think so. I or, won, guys. Am I, I losing didn't. Scott Thornton and I Alan McCauley yeah, in there think, as well? I don't think they were part of that big... Because I, I remember going to LAKings.com and there was this big splash page. Like, oh, that banner. Welcome, <laughs> welcome to Los Angeles. That banner signal change. Yeah, and I think the major thing that signal changed there was the draft. Because I remember we going to the draft and the, and the big trade coming out of the draft was Demetra uh, going to Minnesota for, for Patrick O'Sullivan. For Patrick O'Sullivan. And I can't remember if that involved the Demetri trade. We might have to pull this up to know for sure. But I, I, I recall the story of how Trevor Lewis was drafted involving uh, Dean Lombardi writing down his name on a piece of paper and writing it down in front of the Minnesota GM and keeping it folded and basically telling him that this is the person I'm going to draft with the trade, with the pick that you plan on giving me. And you can hold on to this piece of paper. And if after my position comes up, if I'm not taking that guy then I don't know. You can, you can call that, me man. out that's on that. That's, that's, that's really actually cool a really, story. that's actually a story from way back during that draft. You, that's so Dean. I mean, it's it's, I, Dean I'm move. acting like I know the guy, but he, he, he seems like he's the kind of guy that's always maybe overthinking <laughs> to the point where like over planning and, and things like that. But let's really talk about the years after the second cup. So uh, basically right after Martinez scored that goal, we could we really discuss where things went wrong. And right off the bat, um, not buying out Mike Richards with the compliance option, I think that that's move number one in the move in Lombardi's moves that you could start uh, nitpicking at. So, right, I think as a good GM, as a good 
manager of any business whatsoever, you are, you're constantly looking to improve and not resting on your laurels. And I think Dean's biggest fault was that he trusted and loved these guys to a fault to the point where he felt that, well, if we did it in 2011 and 2012, we did it in 2013, 2014, why break the band up now, even though things are clearly on the decline? And certainly Richards was, was the very first step and the very first and, and several moves that came from that, that just didn't work out the way that you hoped and, and have left the team basically hamstrung going forward and left him hamstrung for several seasons afterwards where he couldn't recover from not buying out Richards. And then we got into the whole ugly scenario of him having drugs across the border and how that came around and what, how we tried to get out from under that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Dean looked at it as an opportunity to build something quote unquote special and like something we don't see in sports. And I think he may have, hitched onto that narrative a little too much i think he may have romanticized the whole thing a little too much because when you look at sports in general it's such a harsh reality um what happens to players how players are moved how players are dealt with and how teams turn over on a yearly basis it's not it's a very romantic thought to be like man let's let's stay together build a dynasty four years five years 80s islanders 80s oilers and and i think i think the word romantic is a great way of describing right I mean, if you look at all of his moves and everything that he does and, and the affection that he shows to to the players, and, and I think even after he was he was let go, you heard stories about how all the players went to his house and almost to console him, if you will, um, or apologize or, or what, what have you. I, I certainly wasn't there. I don't know what their conversations were about. But that's, that's Dean, I think, in in a lot of ways, he's a romantic. And I don't think he's just a romantic in terms of building a team. I think he's a romantic in terms of what team means. It wasn't just a matter of building a championship team. It was about building family with him. And, you know, going even farther beyond the 80s, 80s Oilers or Islanders, I think he probably idolized some of the 70s Canadians or prior oh, sure, team. Sure. You know, those teams that are just legends that, you know, they walk on hallowed ground in Montreal. And I think that's what he was looking to capture again is having teams like that where every guy is a legend. Every guy is, is a household name and, you know, walks through those halls and is loved. But unfortunately the business of sports has, has overtaken those types of teams. And I don't think that's realistic. And certainly with the way the sport is played right now, if you're winning, you are targeted you are an absolute target. And the Kings, for those three seasons, I, I include the season in between because really they lost to the to the Hawks in the, in the Western Conference Final. But, I mean, they were right there. They were just as good sure, as the Hawks were. Sure, they were pretty, like, they were decimated with injuries. Absolutely. And they weren't looking healthy at all. I know, like, guys out of lineup, Richards had his brain scrambled right. not to make light. Lineup, right. You know, but, and then there's the whole, you know, times are different in terms of how, players are viewed in media and the microscope under them which leads us to in my opinion and we'll, we'll cover this several times is number two the second thing that kind of led to the king's downfall was the, just the stupidity and the selfish actions of slava voinov uh october of that year we all know the story we don't want to get into it look there's a lot of there's a lot of parts to this. There's a lot of layers to it. There's a human element to it. But we, as as fans of a sport, we're going to stick to the sports element. So, yeah, the Kings on ice, 
Huge loss. Slava Voinov. A loss that I think still affects the team. Absolutely. He he was moved for Jack Johnson. Uh, he wasn't moved for Jack Johnson. Jack Johnson was moved for Jeff Carter, and he slotted in where Jack Johnson was seamlessly, I might add. And ever since we kind of called Slava up all the way to October 2014, some would argue the Kings had the best defense in the NHL. And he's a big. he was a big part of that. And there's no... You know, you can't really downplay that too much. And what he did puts the Kings in a huge hole in 2014-15. And I think I think that's a very interesting thing that you point out because one of the problems, and I've heard this kind of discussed as one of the reasons why the Kings had their kind of decline, was a, a so-called leadership gap, if you will, where some of the leaders were phased out, but some of the guys who were expected to step into leadership roles were kind of pushed into that position before they were ready. I'm having a hard time thinking of too many teams that have lost players in important positions quite the way the Kings have almost just unceremoniously or just all of a sudden where there was really no room to prepare for it. I would say Richards is maybe the only one that there should have been a little more foresight per se. And maybe again, going back to the buyout that would have helped them from a salary cap perspective. But I think Richards was again, that guy that when, when we traded for him, it was a signal to the rest of the league that the Kings are turning the corner and they mean business and they're approaching things with a different attitude, which is what you get with a guy like Mike Richards when he comes into your locker room and the play that he gives you on the ice. Um, With the way that we lost him and the way that he kind of faded and fell off the map so quickly, it, it jarred everyone. And before they had a chance to recover from that, both in the locker room and in the salary cap, you have a loss of your number two defenseman who basically should have been your number two defenseman for the next decade, more or less, and should have given you the luxury of being able to bring up your younger guys, your rookie defensemen who take longer to develop, knowing that you have Doughty and Voinov for the next decade without anything to worry about. And so now all of a sudden, Doughty has to carry the water a bit more. You have to force Jake Muzzin into a role maybe that he's not quite ready for. Martinez gets bumped up. And so, so you lose two guys immediately to to things that you can't necessarily make up for you don't have a prospect to slot in immediately to take up there and you lose them for nothing you lose them for absolutely nothing you throw in the complications with how stole and and his old you know the vegas arrest issues and whatnot it's just one thing after another after another after another and i don't quite frankly know whether the kings or even dean himself was ready because he romanticizes because he loves these guys quite as much as he does to deal with that. It's, it's, it's basically like taking three of your kids and, and, you know, getting rid of them in, in the worst possible ways for him. That's I probably think, what Dean would say. <laughs> absolutely. Them, yeah. I think, I think quite frankly, he was heartbroken in a lot of ways. And that set him off on a bit of a downward spiral where he was trying to recover both in terms of keeping the locker room, persona the way he liked it and also rebuilding the team in a way where they could still compete but it's hard to fill those gaps in any reasonable fashion in a short period of time which is all nhl teams really have right now to win the cup and in that respect it was voinov's it wasn't even an offseason you could say i have one offseason to do this right voinov's was like tomorrow i need to start thinking about this and number one the king's window Obviously, at that time, was still wide open. I don't think anyone can argue that. They just came off a Stanley Cup win. It looked like, at that time, I'm talking about July of 2014, it looked like, okay, now we're in a window that's going to last at least another five, 
if not more years. Right. Because if you keep bringing in guys, if you keep developing guys the way you have been and you keep sticking to the draft strategy that seemed to be working well at that time. Right. Why, why would you think it wouldn't be that way? And, and what that did with these events, these unforeseen events, what they do is now Dean's like, okay, I have a window here where my team, my core is going to be good for X amount of time. So I have a decision to make is do I replace these players ASAP with whatever I can find or do I wait draft? We'll see what happens with these kids. You know, you have to, you have to fill those roles on a team that's ready to win right now. And that leads us of course to Dean attempting to replace Slava Voinov by acquiring Andre Sakara that trade deadline. And we gave up a first, we gave up Roland McEwen, a good prospect still is, uh, on the cusp of being in the NHL from everything I've read. And if you ask 20 knowledgeable Kings fans, I think 15 of them will tell you that's the trade that they would have back the most. And it's not that I don't disagree or it's not that I disagree with them. It's that I don't see what else Dean was supposed to do. The Kings were, a f- they weren't way out of the playoffs at the time when he made the trade. I think we were, I don't know, eight points out, maybe six points out, something single digits for sure. He gets Sakara. If I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, the Kings go on this East Coast trip and they beat the Rangers, the Devils, and the Islanders, and it looks like all right, you know, we're back. But of course, he gets injured. Uh, that starts the decline to me of the Kings' defense. And we can move on from fourteen, fifteen. God, there's again, we could do a one hour podcast just on that season because that's the season where the chinks in the armor start to show, where the juggernaut kings, the flip the switch, the you can't beat us in seven, the we'll turn it on when we feel like it. Right, the, that aura starts going away. Right. The the mysticism, the myth of the kings, if you will, the the big bad monster that no one could crush in a, in a seven game playoff series. And all of a sudden it, it just goes out the window and it's just one after another, after another. And, and it gets even worse when Sakara just leaves in the off season. Right. And all of a sudden we start realizing, Oh man, all these rentals that we were otherwise getting. Cause we had signed, I mean, we'd gotten Gabarik basically as a rental the season prior and it worked out fantastically. I mean, the guy scored 14 goals in a playoff series. And he resigned because why wouldn't you, you know, because you're looking at the lineup. Okay. You look at that lineup, 13, 14 towards the end. You're like, okay, Dustin Brown's production has dropped. Mike Richards production has dropped. So Dean gets Marion Gabrick who lights it up in the playoffs. So you look at that. You're like, okay, I got these two guys signed forever and they're not right now. They look like they're declining. I got this guy who just led the playoffs in goals. Probably should have won the con Smythe debatable here and there. And you're like, I got to sign this guy because I got two assets here who are not performing the way I want them to. And I got to replace those goals. And I got to sign Marion Gabrick, maybe at all costs. And the cost was, it was a dear cost because now you sign a 32-year-old guy to a seven-year deal. I don't think it takes a genius to realize that years four, five, six, seven might be a problem for this player, given his injury history, given his age, all that stuff. So... That has to happen. I get it. I don't blame Dean for signing Gabrick. Uh, what I do blame him for is maybe the term. And I think you and I even discussed this way back when. For for those tuning in, I'm I've been a Marion Gabrick fan for basically since his rookie season. I would say his draft year. Yeah, I I have watched this dude play his entire career, and I, despite all of his injuries, despite his glass groins, 
he's one of the most dynamic players and one has one of the best releases in the game. He's still capable of scoring, and I wholeheartedly believe that. That being said, age catches up with everyone, and I was probably more excited than anyone when they traded for him uh, going into... You were. I was there. I remember... It, it's always nice you get your favorite player on your favorite team. I mean, team. how often does that really happen? It rarely My happens. phone was blowing yeah. up that day yeah. with people congratulating me as though I as, <laughs> as though I had birthed the trade myself somehow. Right, right, like right. I had I had called them and said, "Hey, you know, if you've Come ever on, thought Mary. about it." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, even then, I I just saw that contract and I, and for me the priority will always go Kings number 1, players number 2, which is how it basically should be for anyone who's a fan or anyone who's a GM, the team should be first. The players individually, unfortunately have to be number two. And even I, I, I mean, that term is just, it's indecent for the yeah. type of team that you're building for the people that you're planning on keeping here forever. That is not the type of contract that you give to someone. You can offer him something shorter term. And if he doesn't sign, then sadly, maybe he needs to go somewhere else. And that's unfortunately kind of where we get into the problem of Dean trying to just keep harnessing lightning lightning in a bottle not change too much not adapt too much and just try and keep bringing guys in and then and then you lead to the next offseason where we bring in Lucic and obviously we give up a first Martin Jones and Kevin Miller was there anyone else I don't think so I think that was the deal and then of course Boston turns around and flips Jones right back to the Pacific Which, by the way I think Dean was aware probably and I remember reading very clearly that Doug Wilson that day had made it clear that this goaltender is going to play for the Sharks next year, which means obviously he's going to offer sheet the goalie. Whoever has him, it doesn't matter. Dean Lombardi is very well aware that whatever is offered to this goaltender in terms of an offer sheet will not be matched by the Kings because they were in no position to pay their backup three million plus whatever you know whatever the offer sheet was going to be. And believe me, San Jose coming off a year where. They missed the playoffs. The Kings missed the playoffs. Goaltending was a hot topic in San Jose for at least two, three seasons. Right. Niemi, you know, right. inconsistency, all that. So, yeah, they're going to pay three point whatever. Even if it's three flat or higher, they're going to pay that money to get their guy. Their guy was Martin Jones. I think Dean Lombardi knew that the Sharks were after him. I'm sure the Sharks approached the Kings of a trade. The Kings said no. So Dean said, what do I do with this asset? And Dean's right. logical conclusion, which, uh, by the way, again, I don't blame him for, is like, okay, we just won the Cup two seasons ago. Last year, we ran out of gas. We had injuries. Let's go get a guy that's going to take us back there. I get the trade. Does it look good today? And it's hard to argue, but honestly, during that season, it's hard to argue with the results. I mean, he he came in, he was exactly the type of player that Dean wanted him to be. He was exactly the type of player that, and you can make the argument that that era of hockey, that kind of bruiser hockey that the Kings really had formed an identity around and won two cups around was kind of on its way out and, and you were moving towards a smaller, faster, sleeker player, um, but it worked out. Where it fell apart was trying to re-sign him, which was something that we were afraid of the entire season, although we kept getting indications from Lucic that maybe he would have stuck around for less money, but... Less money was going to be longer term, which you go back to the same problem. Right, you're going back to that same, well, you're always in the cap era, it's always going to be difficult, and again, he got a better offer from Edmonton, he knew what he was getting in Edmonton, it's fine. Things happen. Right. You can't blame him for trying, honestly. Because, again, you have a very narrow window. Right. If you think that you're going to make a cup run, if you win a third cup and Lucic leaves in the offseason, 
No one's going to care. Right. A lot of quote-unquote experts picked the Kings to win the cup that year. Right. It was the same talk of flipping the switch, playoff right. Look beasts. at them now with I mean, this guy now. Right. You know, no one wants to battle Lucic in the playoffs. I mean, he had won a cup in Boston as well. And, and it's just, again, it's hard to argue with where his logic was at. It's hard to argue with where his heart was at. But unfortunately, it doesn't work out. And logic and heart and, you know, planning isn't what keeps you in your job results are and this season this past season you know we spoke a lot about that this does not look like a playoff team i don't think we were expecting you know anything extraordinary to happen in 16 17 i don't think you know you look at that roster the offseason signings right off the bat there's no excitement there and there's nothing against teddy Purcell. there's no that's nothing against Devin Setaguchi making the team out of camp on a PTO. And some of that's cap restraint, It obviously. is, absolutely. But, you know, to lose Lucic, to, to have two disappointing seasons back-to-back, and now you're going into the season, I didn't feel positive about what was happening. Uh, I look at that roster, and I was like, okay, you know, Nick Dow's probably going to make the team. Uh, on the back end, Forbert's making the team. We don't know what he looks like, this and that. You know, I think those two players will be fine going forward but i don't think you and i especially in our conversations ever felt like all right let's get back on that horse and let's get let's climb that mountain again no, it just didn't me, feel that way no to me right from the get-go it just screamed transition season which i was fine with i was completely and utterly okay with that being the case because having having seen the kings lose for so 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 many years and then see them win and be really truly a good hockey team for about three or four seasons yes i totally became spoiled but at the same time i could tell what it took to win and what what where they were at and what it was going to take to get to that point and i was fine i'm fine with the idea of being in a transitional season and making the right personnel moves and maybe not signing a couple guys to big contracts but own up to the idea that this is a transition season right own up to the idea that this is a time when we're going to try and figure out if some of these guys who've been in our pipeline, like Forbert for, you know, five years or what have you, is this going to be the person who comes in and fills in the void that has been left by losing guys like Slava Voinov? Probably not. I don't think anyone expected that of him right. to be completely clear, but that's fine. Is Nick Dowd going to come in and be a three C that we're missing since we don't have stole anymore? You know, it's it's a lot of pressure too. It is. It absolutely is to put on a bunch of young guys and to have as many rookies. I can't remember the last time the Kings had that many rookies that they were putting into a position where they were actually expected to be vital parts of the team. I think I think in the past when they had you know Toffoli and Pearson come in as rookies and they contributed, everyone was pleasantly surprised and very happy about that. But to come in and and expect Nick Dow to perform night in and night out as your 3C or expect Derek Forbert, who admirably was pushed up into a number two role and playing 20 plus minutes a night, it's not realistic. And then that kind of falls back on the idea of, well, if this is the type of team that you're going to put out there, if this is the type of roster that you're going to put out there and it screams transition season in a lot of ways, do you have the right coach for this type of a team? 
Daryl very much in his history has not been a guy who's gentle with younger players, eases them into the lineup or puts them in a position where they're going to succeed and then gradually puts introduces them to the harder parts of the game. He is someone who throws you into the lion's den and awaits for the survivor to come out and then puts you on the fourth right, line. Right, right. And and we another thing we spoke about is that Daryl is very, very, his structure and his style, I think he's very, very hard-headed about changing that. I think his defense first and his uh, his gritty game, keeping the puck out of the net first, all that stuff, probably with these younger players, what it does is reverse engineers them into kind of putting their offensive skills aside. And okay, let's take care of the defense first. Let's take care of the puck first. Keep it out of our end. And then we'll worry about your skills. Because Nick Dowd, in the first month, and and strictly the first month, by the way, looked like a creative player. He looked like a player who, when he had the puck, was confident. He looked like he was had no problem trying things that maybe you know other young players wouldn't, or even veterans on Daryl's team wouldn't these days. He was making plays out there, and I remember you and I discussing like what. I think everyone. I think everyone remembers down. very much the fake shot drop pass between his legs to Martinez that led to a goal. That basically baffled everyone yeah, because we, we hadn't seen anyone short of maybe Kopitar try anything close to that. Right. And then he had a beauty goal in overtime against Pittsburgh, right. I remember, at home. And then another one, he scored a beauty against Dallas where the Kings' Tom Gilbert, right. another great Kings defenseman, <laughs> by the way, fed him right in the middle. He showed patience. He showed poise. And we were like... We overreacted to Nick Dell. We're like, who is this guy? Like, we obviously we knew who he was from his days in the AHL and all that. Always heard about him. Like, good player, good numbers in the AHL. But you don't expect him to come in. Yeah, and and we're like, what a player this guy. And you know, going into November and December, I remember watching. I was like, he's not trying those things anymore. He's not holding the puck and trying to make a pass that maybe no one else would think to make. And and it's not because all of a sudden teams are having pregame, you know. Yeah, strategy yeah. talks about Circling how to manage yeah. Nick Dowd. <laughs> that's that's not that's no one's priority. No, it's it's purely because, and you could see it in the post game pressers. You could see it in everything. He would make a good play, and not that I expect you know Daryl to come out and give him hugs and kisses and speak the moon of him, but you could just see in the way that he was playing that he was being fed a different type of coaching strategy. He was being told to do something different than what he was naturally doing. And I can't honestly tell you it was better because you can look at all his advanced stats and stuff and see that it wasn't exactly, he still wasn't getting that much better in terms of his defensive coverage or anything sure. like that. But now you're, you're losing the offensive component exactly. as well. So and what that, is the point? That goes back to like reverse engineering a player. To me, and I coach hockey and we've both played the game for a long time. To be clear, we're not, you know, semi-pros or anything no, like no, that. No, not even close. But we've, look, we, we played various different levels that's we'll leave it at that and to me every coach i've had and now that i coach myself i you know hide weaknesses and i bring strength to the forefront with players and that's what was done to me i'm sure it was done to you so to take a player and be like all right we know you're you do this real well but let's kind of let's put that on the shelf right now let's really focus on these things that you need to learn before you can do the, the thing that you're which is just it's crazy to me it's you know nick shore he has he had tremendous numbers in the AHL and and Mayor John Hoven he says Daryl Sutter scared the offense out of players. He said he scared the offense out of Nick Shore, likely scared the offense out of Nick Dowd. And I see that. I see what he's saying and I totally agree with him on that. And what I see is a team that was so 
focused on defense, which is great that when a player came in and they try to introduce that new player to this culture, this team, this, you know, history of the last three years of success, they kind of forget why that player got there in the first place. And and I think some of that, again, goes back to the idea of having the luxury of introducing players knowing that you have other guys who can pick up the slack, knowing that you have guys who can cover up for their mistakes and can let them be playing to their strengths a bit while you try and focus on their weaknesses a little bit more. And when you don't have that roster, and in all fairness to Daryl Sutter, towards the end of the season when things were starting to kind of, you know, start looking a little more frayed on the edges and he was ever so subtly making jabs at, at Lombardi yeah. and pressers and whatnot about the, the roster that he had and what type of a team he was able to field, um, or ice, I should say, uh, he was basically saying that he was playing these guys in a position that he would not otherwise play them. And therefore he was forcing square pegs in the round holes as opposed to letting them potentially play to their strengths and then, you know, gradually bring about their weaknesses over the course of a season or two, which is what he had the luxury of potentially doing with Toffoli and Pearson and even Dowdy to some extent. I mean, Dowdy, if you look at Dowdy's offensive numbers, they have declined, you know, I think save for a blip maybe in his third season or whatnot, where it went up a little bit, but he came in, was tearing it up in a second season offensively and was nominated for Norris probably more so based on his offensive numbers and his actual defensive prowess, but it's only now where you see his defensive, you know, posture improving and his overall defensive play improving over the fourth, fifth, sixth season and beyond, but you see his offensive numbers kind of coming down because he himself is adjusting his game to what he feels needs to be played for the sake of the team to win. I feel like guys like Nick Shore, Nick Dowd, and even more contemporarily, Adrian Kempe, aren't being given the opportunity to realize whether they have enough offensive skill naturally, which has always been their calling card to succeed in the NHL and then hone in on the other things. Kempe's getting 12 minutes a night and being told to, you know, basically skate ladders and poke check, despite the fact that he every once in a while exhibits the creativity and the ability to make something happen. Yeah. I remember towards the end of the season, I think, uh, and we were still in the race. We weren't eliminated yet. I think Kempi was sitting at eight some odd minutes of ice time going into the third period. And Iginla was at like 20 or close to 20. And again, Jerome, this is again, he did great for the Kings in his short time here. Uh, we enjoyed having him. But when you you bring in a kid like Adrian Kempe, who from all indications is a dynamic talent, you know, is he an Austin Matthews or William Nylander type of impact player in his first year? No, but not everyone's going to be that player. So to bring him into a team that's starving for offense and to have him in, in certain situations, maybe even punish him for leaning too much on his offense and not enough. It's just crazy to me. And, you know, we heard, we heard many times that, Oh, Daryl was cool with bringing in these young players and there was maybe Dean who wasn't into it. But to me, what I see is what I see on the ice. And what I see on the ice is there was games where he didn't see the entire third period. There were games where he wasn't put into any special team situation. Obviously, I mean the power play in this case. It wasn't put on the power play when all season we're looking for guys to put on the play. Devin Setaguchi was on the power play. Right. And we can't give Adrian Kempe 30 seconds on the power play. You know, it's just... Things like that, I think eventually it wears thin. It it it, yeah. it you know, there's only so much of that that you can see, and then obviously it goes into this other layer of 
um, you hear murmurs that Dean was kind of told from higher ups that he could maybe stick around if he could bear to part with Daryl. And again, going back to Dean being a romantic and his and his ideals of a family and and team above all else, and his love for Daryl, which he's been unabashedly speaking, you know, of for for years, wasn't able to let Daryl go for the sake of saving saving his own skin. And so now you're in the situation where you both have to go because everyone else around you is realizing that going back to that old well of doing things that Daryl and Dean way is just not working. And whether you want to argue that it's because the, the game has changed or whatnot, it's, I don't even think it's so much that I don't think it's a matter of being stubborn and trying to keep doing things the same way. I think it's just having situations placed upon the team that are not normal situations and they're difficult to adjust to with the way that you are coaching these younger players that have to come in and fill these roles, unfortunately, due to circumstances that are somewhat beyond our control. And if you're not capable of doing that, then you're not the right coach for it, unfortunately. Is John Stevens the right coach? I certainly hope so. I mean, he's certainly closer, you know, in his career to AHL coaching than than Daryl has been. Um, so maybe he's still, you know, or maybe he's seen the, the problems. He saw the way that younger players were not being brought in properly into the lineup and and he wants to address those mistakes. I'm certainly not in the rooms when he's discussing and and giving his pitch to Blake and getting hired on for it. Whatever he said, he must have, you know, must have pleased some people because now he's the head coach of the Kings going into the 17-18 season. And that's a good segue um, because now we are on the off season, obviously, uh, as you're listening to this. Uh, we are in June, and we are going toward what might be the nuttiest summer uh, the NHL has had in a long time, and that's due to the expansion draft. So the options of protection, uh, as it's been documented, you can go eight skaters and a goalie. You can go seven forwards, three defensemen, and a goalie. Any player that has not completed two seasons of professional hockey is exempt from the uh, expansion draft. The Kings likely i think would go eight skaters uh i think they're as it stands right now that's kind of what we're hearing and because what vardy means by as it stands is um trades obviously are a big part of the expansion draft moving forward and from everything we've heard and read and um from everything we've heard and read most king's trades probably if any would happen after the expansion draft uh, I was reading that today on Twitter that the likelihood of Kings of the Kings making a trade beforehand is actually lower right. than right. than after. So as it stands, I think Kings are going Kopitar to Foley, Pearson, Carter, Martinez, Muzzin, Dowdy, Forbert, and I'll let you guys guess who the goalie is going to be that they're going to protect. So that's Jack Campbell, Jack Campbell, the future. I think this is the third time he'd be the future of a team. So that's probably the protection list we're looking at. Again, there are deals that could be made here. And George McPhee and GM, GM. Vegas Golden Knights made it clear that they are open for business in terms of in terms of receiving first round picks or any kind of pick to take on bad contracts. Right. And you've so, already heard rumors that Anaheim, I think, uh, Chicago, yeah. and one other team at the very least, at, in, in principle, had a deal with them to kind of sway them towards picking one player over another. Right. And obviously the big name from the Kings perspective, Kings fans perspective is Jack Campbell. (laughs) Well, let's, let's stick to the Americans. It would be if 
Vegas would take Dustin Brown, uh, provided the Kings gave them a first-round pick, which would be number 11 overall in the 2017 draft. And from all indications, the Kings won't do that. And I'll and again, it's because this is goal goes back to Dean Lombardi and mortgaging the future and selling off all those picks to get Sakara, Lucic, and all those other legends in Kings lore now. The window's still open, I would say, barely. But I still think in this case, you hang on to the number 11 pick if you can. The only way, Vardy, the only way I would move that pick, and I think we've talked about it, is if you are getting a young stud top six forward back, I could then it becomes a little more palatable to move that pick. And you're talking about trading it to another team. Correct. Not necessarily. Not necessarily Vegas. I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about, we need to draft at 11 in the 2017 draft. They say it's not a deep draft, but all my research on these prospects. And you've done quite a bit. I have. I mean, just to kind of plug him a bit, guys, he, he's looked into this. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I've looked into it. There's good players there. Now are there, again, I'm going back to, you know, Matthews was there last year and McDavid and, there aren't any players like that. Could there be potentially? Could Nico Hishier or Nolan Patrick become this generational talent? Yeah, because you never know. And I don't care how good of a scout you are, you just never know. Right. Um, but there will be good players in the top 15. I would even say top 20. The Kings have a good shot at landing a good young player, and they desperately, desperately need one. And I think some of that comes back to, like you mentioned, it's you've given up so many first round picks and by and large, if you look statistically at where your pipeline gets um, refilled from, it's from first round picks. Now, again, not every first round pick. And this is something that, you know, we all kind of struggle with is you expect that if you're drafting someone in the first round, by and large, you're going to end up being a top six forward, a top four defenseman. That's not necessarily how it works. You know, you, you can get guys from the first round who end up being bottom six players, but there's good bottom six players. That Trevor you Lewis need. was drafted in the exactly, first round. Exactly. And now we're, you know, anyone you look at, the potential of losing Trevor Lewis in the expansion draft is is something that people are dreading. Not not that it's going to cripple the Kings per se, but it's it's something that will set them back, certainly, because he's a reliable veteran player who does his role and does it well. And it's hard. And as we've already discussed, that's one of the problems that the Kings have had over the last few years is trying to plug in holes for people that, you know, they lost in ways that they couldn't avoid. Um, And so I think that's what it comes back down to is that statistically, you're more likely to get a solid NHL player from a first round pick than anywhere else, no matter how good your drafting is. And having lost the potential to get so many first-round picks by trying to trade and trying to capitalize on your championship window, I think now with a new regime in place, the Kings, and particularly Rob Blake, would be hesitant to give up a first-round pick potentially for the salary cap relief of trading Dustin Brown, who, in my own humble opinion, has been mistreated by the Kings, shall we say, for a contract that... That he, that he was given to sign. I mean, that's and basically I, what it comes I'd down to. I'd say he earned. Because Quite, yeah. It, yeah. Some players for this expansion draft have been asked to waive their no-move clause, have been, and then when they don't, some fan bases are up in arms like, oh, you're not... But you know what? He earned that contract. He earned that no-move clause, and it's the same thing with the Brown. He didn't have an agent. He negotiated that contract on his own at the time of the signing, and I don't care who denies this. When he signed on that paper and it was announced... People thought it was a good deal. I remember a lot of people saying, great deal. Uh, his age was 
was good enough for his term to make sense. The cap hit was fine. He had earned it. He was still a productive player, and his last contract was peanuts for what he was bringing. So essentially with Vegas and George McPhee saying that they're willing to take on bad contracts for picks, obviously his name comes up immediately, and then obviously Marion Gabrick's name comes up immediately too. I think a lot of the approach that I've kind of heard, and this is kind of going back to Blake's um, initial press conference about uh, taking over the team, and someone asked him about buying out Gabrick, which obviously isn't a possibility anyway because of his whole injury situation. Um, but I kept getting the sense that it's almost as though this last season is being called a mulligan, and they want to give everyone a shot to kind of see where they really are at, whether this was the Daryl and Dean and kind of the overall decline and just you know, the funk that was resting over the team, whether that was what was affecting some of these players or if it's truly, nope, sadly, this is where you are in in your career and there's nothing we can do about it. That's- right. It, I, I believe it looks like the Kings are likely either losing Lewis or McNabb um, in the yeah. expansion draft. I thought uh, Dowd was potentially. Dowd too, right. Yeah. So I would say those are the three logical targets, but I, I would put McNabb and Lewis one and two, maybe right. you could flip flop those, put Lewis one. I don't know, but I think doubt is like option number three for them. And reason being doubt is not exactly a young prospect. Sure. Neither is McNabb, but he, I, we just talked at length about the, uh, the premium on defensemen these days. So I think McNabb's probably likely target maybe Lewis for that veteran leadership, Stanley cup pedigree, all that stuff. Right. But I think, I think, I think if you just kind of look at, what is an easier position to fill on a new team that you're building? I think it's easier to fill that bottom six forward position than it necessarily is to bring in a young defenseman who has been groomed um, by two other NHL teams, granted to maybe not to the, the potential that you thought he had, but he's still a bruiser. He's still learning a lot of ways. He's been set back a bit by injuries. I think if I if you were to ask me right now, gun to my head, who I think they're going to take, I think it's going to be McNabb. And would you take McNabb if you were McPhee over Lewis? Yeah, probably. All right. And that's that's even that's despite being a Kings fan and not thinking that McNabb is actually going to be much of a big loss. Quite frankly, I think he's been passed on the depth chart and. You know, much smarter minds than me have already said multiple times on the internet that you know he's he's been passed in the organization's mind on the depth chart. Sometimes through no fault of his own, like I said, the injuries have set him back quite a bit. But that's that's sports that happens to everyone. Um, but yeah, so if I I I think the Kings are going to end up going four four one or you know eight and one, I should say. Um, and I think McNabb's who they're going to go in my dream scenario. <laughs> I would trade one of the defensemen to some other team and try and get another forward. But that's, you know, that that's kind of been rumored about as well. And it sounds like by all indications, the Kings are going to wait until after the expansion draft to make any potential trades. And probably my guess would be until the entry draft or after that to get a sense of what they can get for who they can get to try and build back their forwards. Okay. So one of the names was Jonathan Drouin of Tampa Bay. Now of the Montreal Canadians, that trade happened Today, the day of this recording, Hot off the presses. The trade was Druan and I want to say it was a f- God. It was so bad. I don't want to remember it. It really hurt my feelings because Druan's the guy. I think Vardy will agree with me that as fans, we coveted the most for that position. God, um, he's sexy. 
He's 22, left winger, highly creative, highly skilled. All the things the Kings have not been for the last two seasons. So that was the guy, if we had to pick, that was the guy we wanted. He's gone now, obviously, for Sergachev, Mikhail Sergachev, and two picks that might not even matter. So it might be a one-for-one if Sergachev plays 40 games for Montreal, which he very well might. I'm not sure how many did he play any games for last Tampa? You mean? Yeah, for Tampa. Sorry, did he play for I think Montreal? He played a handful. I think he played five or six games. Nothing. Nothing huge. like forty. Yeah, nothing close to that. But again, Montreal's D was kind of stacked at that point, and so he I played don't know what, four games. Yeah, he played I, I fifty know. for Windsor. So yeah, forty is actually that's you know that's not a bad condition if you think about it. I thought. I wasn't really sure how many games he'd played, so I thought it was more of a layup, but I guess it's not because... Also, keeping in mind that he's a defenseman. I mean, they're sure, not going to just throw him in and play third-line, fourth-line minutes if, as though he was a forward. Um, and defensemen take longer to develop. Right, so I don't know if Tampa is necessarily just going to throw him in there and say, here, play 40, 40 games of 16 minutes each just so you get some development. But then again, I don't think they're going to keep him out of the lineup if they need him just for the sake of getting a second-round pick. What a weird trade, huh? It it kind of took me by surprise in the sense that Tampa, even though they missed the playoffs last year, I felt like, okay, they're just going to have a bounce back year and they'll be fine this upcoming season. And, you know, they were the consensus pick to win the cup last summer and they missed the playoffs, but they're still very much a team that if you look at the makeup of their roster, the age, you look at Stomkos' age, you look at Hedman's age, it's still very much a win-now kind of team. So they go and trade a 22-year-old for someone who's even younger and is going to take longer to develop. I think think the thing that... So one of the reasons I think, obviously, why they weren't as successful last year as they were before that was because Stomkos was hurt for such a significant amount of time. I mean, you don't just make up for a guy like that out of nowhere. Um, I think the other thing that I read was that going into, again... The expansion draft coming back up again, um, Tampa had more forwards than they could possibly protect. And Duran obviously yes, had, had his... A- yeah, Duran had obviously already had his issues while he was there, demanded the trade, sat out, came back in, did you know reasonably well for a guy of his stature and looking like he's going to do even better. And so they felt like... And that's where the rumors kind of started is that he was available and that's, you know... Um, and so they felt like they, sh- they should get something from him uh, being traded rather than potentially lose him or someone else that they couldn't stand to, to lose uh, in the expansion draft. Now, the weird part for me isn't so much that they got Sergachev from, from Montreal. I can understand, you know, we've already talked at length earlier how important it is to keep your defensive pop, uh, pipeline uh, constantly refilling. The strange part for me is to trade him to Montreal of all teams, because that's a team that you're going to have to go through to make it to the cup final. You are going to have to play this team several times a year in the Eastern conference. And you have to feel like that is going to be tough sledding already because beyond Montreal, you still have Pittsburgh, you still have Washington, you have a host of teams in the East. And so the part that confuses me more than anything else is could they not find anyone, not necessarily the Kings, but could they not find anyone in the Western Conference to make a comparable trade to where you wouldn't have to necessarily deal with the next decade of Jonathan Drouin constantly improving and 
you know, biting you in the butt. Yeah. And know. from a King's perspective, obviously there's no one in the pipeline that you could compare to Sergachev in terms of his top tier potential, in terms of his age, in terms of his ability to jump into the lineup, probably as soon as next season, we just don't have a comparable right. in any position. Really, right. it's not even about defense. So, right, Muzzin in the first was not going to get it done. No, basically, no. And but the thing is, like, it should have. You know, when I look at Tampa, I feel like it should have gotten it done. And I don't think the Kings didn't try. I'm sure there were conversations with Blake and. Iserman, but you know, I think at the end of the day, Iserman wanted a young defenseman, and and we're talking about eighteen years old, young, and for this one, but he wanted, I guess, someone to go beyond a win now. And again, the other thing that we don't know is, and and we 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 posted this on Twitter maybe last week about where our own our own personal rank would be of of the players that we would covet, and the Kings were rumored to potentially be going after, and Duran was at the top of that list, but that's just us. I, I am not in that room again, and I am not an insider in any fashion. So I have no idea what it is that the Kings and Blake necessarily want for this team going forward. And so maybe Druan, despite his elite offensive potential, the creativity, whatever, just plain old wasn't the guy that the Kings wanted to break the bank for or or give up Muzzin or Martinez or one of their other potential tradable options for. Um, maybe it was someone else. And then the other, the other guys that the Kings have kind of been linked with, um, in terms of going after were, uh, Evander Kane of Buffalo, um, Gabriel Landeskog of Colorado, who I feel like I've been hearing about for about eight months, potentially getting traded to the Kings or anyone else. Um, it's been so long that you start feeling like it's just not, he's not going to move. I know exactly. At some point it's just, it's just. And actually, the other name you mentioned was Galchenyuk right. to me uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it's not that his name's been in the rumors that much. There, you know, I've heard his name here and there. And I even read a report where it's like it's a done deal that he's going to get traded. There's right. no way they're keeping right. all this. And again, not know, necessarily hyperbole. to the Kings, just to someone. Right. So of those, uh, four, well, we could say three now. Drew ends off the list. Galchenyuk, Landeskog, and Kane. I think Landis Cog's staying when something drags on this long, it's right. almost inevitable that it's just not going to happen. Right. Unless, unless again, there was something dragging on because of the old regime and now with the new regime. And I don't know. Yeah. That's the only thing I can think well, of. Basically what it comes down to is, is the Kings trading chips are Muzzin or Martinez right. at this point. And I don't see them trying to move anyone else. I mean, maybe they try Forbert, but I don't think Forbert's going to get you a return. He doesn't have that significance. Value. Yeah, and he's still he's still feeling feeling his way through the NHL and all that. You're looking at Muzzin or Martinez, and probably a pick or maybe uh, a prospect that you don't necessarily want to give up or right. something like that. But if see for me, and we discussed this, Druan. You you break the bank for him. You yeah. go Muzzin. You go maybe a first. You, you give go, Kempe. You maybe you give Kempe right. Kempe, honestly, if you if you think about it, if you're looking at tradable chips, Kempe's the best chip you have. I yes. think Kempe is probably a better chip than a first rounder this year because I think if you get a first rounder in 2017, you're hoping that it's a guy like Kempe, who is has still the potential to be a top six. Yeah, see, that's winger. a tough one for me. I know you seem really. To you think, think it's you, a slam dunk? 
So you would go so first Kempe? round. You would value first round pick over Kempe. That's hard. That's a tough question. Okay. Um, I guess what I'm saying is that Durant would maybe be the only player of those four that we've mentioned that I would be okay with Kempe even being involved in some sort of a trade for. Muzzin and Kempe for Landeskog? No. No? I wouldn't do it. I would I would easier go Muzzin and a first for Landeskog. Even even that hurts just saying it out loud, but I'm I'm saying if you were yeah. if you were to give me the Again, option, you got to consider his age. Yeah, which is I do, I do, and and the contract and everything, I do, and I and I love the way he plays. I think he's a great player who's just on a tire fire of a team, basically. Yeah. Um, so Duran's off the table. You're looking at either Galchenyuk or Landeskog hypothetically as options. I don't think you give up Adrian Kempe in any trade scenario for Galchenyuk or Landeskog or Evander Kane. I think. For Jonathan Drouin, I would have considered throwing Kempe into some sort of a trade scenario. For the other guys, I think you dangle Martinez, Muzzin, one of the two of those guys. I feel like Martinez. Sort of a, I feel like Martinez as a centerpiece. I don't want to say centerpiece, but from the Kings' end, sure. the main piece. I think it gets you in, into a conversation for Kane. I don't think. I don't think it. You know, Galchenyuk or Landeskog. Montreal or Colorado? No, definitely not. No. Because it's, so, it's two different tiers of player. So for what one about, thing, so what about Evander Kane? He's he's an interesting one. He's had obviously a lot of off ice issues, which is the last thing the Kings need right now. Where they are, what they're the seasons they're coming off of, the stories, and just it's like a dark cloud that still follows the team. And now you you're talking about Evander Kane, who is very much has very much earned a reputation deserved or not. I don't know. It's not up to me to decide, but he has it uh, with him. I'm just talking about on ice and on ice. I think he's a fit. If you're talking about fit, I think he fits more than Galchenyuk fits on this team. And that's saying a lot. Cause that's a, you know, Galchenyuk's 23 year old winger was also creative and, and highly skilled, but Kane's game, his hard nosed game, the way he drives the net, uh, I would say he's a fearless kind of player. He goes to the areas where John Stevens in his press conference said, oh, we're going to go into the middle of the ice. We're going to go into those dirty areas. He produces too. And he's young. He's 25, which is, he, it feels like he's been around for like 10 years and he's 25 years old. Which in a lot he has because despite being 25, he's a UFA next year. Right. He's the only guy amongst all these names who gets to be a UFA next year because he will have played eight seasons by the time this next season is up. And so by the, and that, that's another issue. Um, in addition to the character problems um, that may drive his trade value down a little bit is that basically you're getting one year of him guaranteed. Right. And so then it's, it's up to you to resign this guy. For the Kings. Right. You want to talk about their recent past and what they want to avoid. Evander Kane. I mean, it could be, it could be another Lucic scenario all over again of, yeah. you know, you love the guy for a year and then you lose him again for absolutely nothing. So it's, it is not an easy situation. It is absolutely not an easy situation, which is why looking completely beyond the character, what have not, and his ability being what it is, I would rank him as as the fourth most favorable option simply because I just, I don't know, once bitten, twice shy, if you will. I don't want to have to deal with that again 
potentially for a guy that we would give up assets for and then lose in the offseason for absolutely nothing. Especially when the last general manager, when he was fired, that was one of the things that was brought up with regard to why he was let go. And another thing that was brought up in terms of why he was let go was the fact that, and this is going back a little bit, but he let Slava Voinov practice with the team despite the allegations against him and all that. And and Kane (laughs) covers like all those bases. What I mean is... It's that type of player that this new regime should likely try to stay away from on many levels, not just on the ice, off the ice contract, all that stuff combined. So I don't know. That's why I agree he's probably the last of the the four that we mentioned, now three with Drew Ang gone. But in terms of his on-ice play, I think he fits. The rest is just it's a little more complicated than that. Right. So we'll, we'll see where it goes with that. All right, so it's going to be a wild week ahead of us. Um, I'm excited for it, man. I got to tell you, it's... I love the offseason. It is, (laughs) but especially this one. This one is different. Like, this one has the potential to go really crazy. I hope it's not like trade deadline day where you wake up at six in the morning and you just like Christmas morning and, and always ends up being disappointing. And I just, always. I, I listen to James Duffy puns for yeah, 12 hours and then nothing happens. Good stuff. Good stuff. But this, this season with the expansion draft, and this is an expansion draft like no other, because they're trying to make this team competitive. So it's going to, I think it's going to be good. I think it's going to be real crazy. The fact that they're rolling out the team, at the NHL awards, like beautifully done. I, I would have done it differently. I think I would have done it very much like the bachelor where the Vegas GM goes and hands them sticks or Jersey, something like that. And you see real raw disappointment, you know? I'm yeah, guys, I, I do not work for CBS, but I would like to in the future. So I have some ideas, but that's, that's, I think that's, what's going to be real fun about it is that it's going to be a lot of movement. It's going to be a little bit of drama and, the fact that the NHL seems to be embracing it for once instead of trying to keep it old school, traditional, let's not embarrass anyone and let's not, you know, give out any names and stuff like that. So, right. No. And that's, it's, it's going to be fun. It could be absolutely nothing for the Kings beyond just losing a player in the expansion draft and then just standing pat until, you know, the preseason in September. And if that's the case, then so be it. But you still have the expansion draft, you still have the entry draft, you still have free agency all coming up within a short two and a half week period. And so as a Kings fan, it's going to be awesome to watch. As a hockey and NHL fan, it's going to be even better to watch. And I think our goal overall, just to kind of put this out there um, with starting this podcast, is to hopefully do uh, a buy. I'm sorry, every two week episode at the very least. And so certainly we'll have plenty to talk about two weeks from now. Um, and we'll see how it goes in the off season. You know, things can get a little bit sleepy around August, but that's fine. We'll do our best. Um, certainly we'll have plenty to do during the regular season, but for now, thank you much for tuning in. Uh, I am Vardy. That's my buddy Gatto on the other end. We are the Bannerman. This was episode one. And please follow us on Twitter at the Bannerman pod. And subscribe to us on iTunes, on SoundCloud, and all your podcatchers that you might be using. Our website is bannermanpodcast.com. And we'll see you guys next time for episode two.